Hey guys and girls, welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. And as always, I'm your host, Roman Segal, and thank you for being with us today. And in today's episode, I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Ian Seng, who is Managing Director at LEK Consulting. Ian is someone I've admired for a few years. I've had the privilege of seeing Ian speak at certain events and talk through some incredible market data and insight that really shone light on where the market was going for me a few years ago. And he continues to do so now uh, in his role at LEK. Um, I... I spent a long time trying to get Ian on the podcast, given the amount of M&A activity in this space. He has been a uh, a busy guy over the last couple of years, so I was really pleased that he, he finally managed to make the time to come on and, and, and be a guest. And as we are at the start of the new year, you know, understanding where the market is going from a macro perspective down to a more, I suppose, industry and business perspective within the pharma services CRO CDMO space is paramount so it's a really well timed episode and I think pairs quite nicely with Jim Miller's episode at the back end of 2022 so in today's episode listen out for some just general insights trends and advice for you guys as you navigate uh, the current market scenario uh, naturally we we talk about the biotech slowdown and what that can mean for you guys within your organization if you're on the vendor side and on the sponsor side as well one thing i didn't know about ian was he studied at harvard and i don't know many people who've gone to harvard and so i took the opportunity to ask him about what life was like there and he opened up and talked about some of the things that he learned and the people that he met which i thought was was fascinating as we dive deep into the sector one of the really fascinating things ian touched on today is the idea of how complex uh, technology and modality is getting in the space and the fragmentation of these areas and why that is leading to a huge challenge for CDMOs in terms of where do they place their bets for the future. One of the real things that I learned from Ian and I picked up from his talk at PBOA a few months back was this concept of platform technologies and conserved areas, effectively investing in almost areas that are not reliant on modalities but kind of sit one level above or below depending on your angle and that allow for I suppose different types of modalities on a similar kind of platform which I thought was really interesting and finally amongst lots of other things um, I just thought it was quite interesting Ian you know with his 25 years or so in this sector on the consulting side kind of being able to step back and talk about the wide lens of going from billions of pills and blockbuster drugs to much more advanced therapies that we do today. For background Ian is based in Boston and has well over 20 years of consulting experience in growth strategy, regulated markets, innovation, pricing and M&A. He directs projects across the healthcare spectrum with particular emphasis on biopharma and life sciences and medtech practices. As a focus area, he leads LEK's pharma contract services practice. Additionally, he has extensive consulting and board experience with nonprofit organizations in education, art, LGBT, advocacy, 
and public service. He received a BA degree um, in chemistry from Harvard College and is a George F. Baker Scholar MBA with high distinction from Harvard Business School. As always, thank you so much for listening and a quick thanks to my team who uh, kindly help put this together, uh, Roxana, Hannah and Tony and Gemma, who all work really hard in helping us put this podcast to your ears. Um, if you get a chance today, go and give us a nice rating. Come on, start the year in style by giving us your favorite podcast, a five-star rating and even better, share it with a colleague in contact and say, you need to be listening to this podcast. Quick plug for my book, The Floundering Founder, which is almost a year old since it's come out uh, last January. So if you get the moment, go on to Amazon and buy a copy. Beyond that, enjoy today's show. Hi, Ian. Welcome to Molecule to Market. Thank you so much, Rama. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. And I think uh, I actually did, Ian, go back before and it was uh, 18 months ago, maybe even two years ago, that I reached out to you originally to try and get you on the podcast. So <laughs> I know you're a busy guy, so I'm very, very grateful um, to have you on the show. And I'm, I'm hoping you're going to give our, our listeners a lot of value today because I certainly uh, got a great amount of value when I've seen you speak at various events and all that kind of good stuff. But before we start, let's let's kind of give our listener a bit of the background, Ian. Tell tell a listener a bit about you and how you got into the sector. And, uh, you know, obviously your 25 years or so at LEK Consulting has been uh, a real kind of long stint with the same organization. So we'd love to hear kind of how you got into the sector and, and how, how you've ended up, you know, creating a great career for yourself. For sure. Thank you. So, uh... I did, as you mentioned, joined LEK 25 years ago, coming out of undergrad. Um, and at the time, uh, we were making a name for ourselves on the, the biotech side, emerging biotech side with the, the early pioneers, like the Biogens, the Genentechs, the Genzymes of the world. Um, so I really came uh, to LEK at a time where uh, we were establishing a leading position amongst biotech. But that was it. That was, we were a small firm at the time, and, and we had a narrow position. Uh, but if you fast forward uh, 10 years, uh, then at that point, we had really diversified our healthcare practice into everything from pharmaceuticals to med devices to healthcare services to payer work, uh, really across the spectrum. And uh, at about that same time, I became a partner with LEK and realized, gosh, there's this whole market that supports the life sciences industry. Uh, really consisting of contract manufacturers, contract research, contract commercial services. And I had the opportunity to start working on a lot of those projects as uh, we got inbound leads from various clients and, um, and, and so found that I had suddenly developed a little bit of an expertise. Uh, and so about two or three years into that, I decided, hey, let me focus on this and, and discovered it was really a fascinating, really interesting part of the pharmaceutical industry, really helping people figure out how to actually bring uh, molecules to the market, uh, to, to, to name the podcast a little bit. Um, but it's really remarkable because on the life sciences side, we really focused on things like R&D portfolio optimization or thinking about the, the revenue potential or partnerships and deals, but sometimes figuring out, well, how does it actually happen? Um, we didn't spend as much time on. Uh, and I realized, gosh, it's really actually fascinating to think about how discovery works, how manufacturing works, how research works, and, and then how commercialization works and market access works. 
so suddenly found myself uh, founding and leading a practice in pharma services. Which is excellent. And it's it's amazing to hear the it, the way you describe the almost the development of going from those early phase biotech companies that went on to become large organizations and then kind of find your way into the contract services space almost mirrors what's happened in the market during that time period. I'm guessing when it was 20, 22 years ago, the contract services market was in its infancy to an extent. So how have you found the growth of the space in the last 20 years or so? It's be, it must have been amazing to be at the center of all that and being involved in, in so many different projects during that time. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really interesting question. And it really depends on which part of the contract service side of things that we're talking about. Uh, certainly the CRO market uh, had become much more prominent. A lot of the companies had been founded uh, in, in the 80s uh, and 90s to support research. Uh, but to your point, there was uh, in some ways, the early days of contract services, what, what exactly did it look like? What services were you providing? Uh, started off as, you know, in some ways, body shops and hiring, hey, we have some expertise or we could do it. A lot of contract service organizations were founded by folks who came out of big pharma. Uh, they realized they did something for big pharma that other people needed it. They, they quit their jobs, they you know, hung the shingle, and they, they said, hey, I'm going to be a contract service provider. And, and so it was an area where it was always needed. But, but to your point, Raman, at Ellie Kay's time of moving from the in the 90s um, with the biotech industry and growing up with it, you were looking at the explosive growth of the biotech and pharma industry, but also a transition of the pharma industry from what was the dominant model in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, right, of large chemical companies basically sticking patients with different things and seeing what happened and then saying, hey, we can commercialize this drug and do something. Uh, and it was really pharma screening libraries. The, the biotech revolution that really happened in the 90s changed the paradigm of that. The innovation started of the industry started coming outside from outside uh, of big pharma and from these biotechs. And at the same time, technology was fragmenting in terms of how you did discovery and how you did um, manufacturing. Uh, and you see that in an extreme sense today, when you think about cell and gene therapies, when you think about small batch specialized therapeutics, all of these things are creating a fragmentation of technology. And that trend means that number one, you you can't be an expert at all things as a big pharma company. So you have to look external externally for innovation, which is why they do so much in licensing from biotech. But at the same time, it also means you need a set of skills and capabilities that um, it's very hard to utilize efficiently internally. And it's very hard to stay on top of the industry with respect to expertise internally on everything you could possibly need to develop drugs. And those dynamics, right, the inability to uh, be an expert in everything and the inability to use those capabilities uh, efficiently with high utilization in a very fragmented technology world, all that suggests outsourcing. And so what you saw with the 90s biotech revolution is this diversification and fragmentation of capability and technology led to more outsourcing, especially in... Uh, 
research discovery included in that, uh, as well as manufacturing. And that really led to all the diversification of players that you see out there today, um, but also goes to the complexity of managing the whole process, especially across a portfolio of drugs. And did you, if you rewind back to, you know, to 2005, 2006, when you were saying working on, a, on an M&A deal for a client and you were projecting the growth of outsourcing, albeit within CRO or CDMO, did you envisage the growth that we've actually experienced? Did you think it would be as, would be at the velocity of, at we, which we've seen particularly in the last probably 10 years or so? Did you envisage that back then or was that something that's taken even you by a, a bit of surprise, Ian? It's an interesting question. When we've looked at it, uh, there's probably been two things about our projections, which have probably been a bit conservative in looking back on it. Um, number one, uh, the speed of outsourcing and the outsourcing migration, uh, but also uh, how far it got in terms of absolute percentage, right? In other, in other words, uh, there was a time where people said, oh, well, you could only get to 20% outsourced or 30% outsourced. And it just kept pushing the limits to 30, 40, 50, 55, 60, depending on what we're talking about. Some of those things are actually in the 90s, right? If you think about certain technologies that support life sciences. Um, and so at every step of the way, folks in the industry, whether it was participants uh, like Big Pharma, like a biotech, like a CRO, like a tech company, they usually said, hey, I think the limit is X. And then three years later, you know, they'd say, well, the limit is now X plus 10. <laughs> and you, you just kept going. <laughs> and it kept going higher and higher and higher. So you do see that. And then the other part was, as you think about where in the adoption curve outsourcing really is, uh, things moved faster uh, than folks anticipated. And a lot of that probably had to do with the, the pace of change and innovation in and of itself within uh, biotech um, and pharma. There is so much innovation that it moves at faster cycles than your capital equipment can move. You know, a lot of capital equipment is at least certainly amortized over five years, if not 10 to 20 years. Uh, but when you think about the technology cycles, some of these things are very, very rapid. Um, we sometimes look at Aldevron, the big plasmid company. Uh, folks said, hey, it was an overnight success. Well, it was an overnight success for a company with a company that had been around for 20 years, right? I, it was not a new company when it suddenly became the darling of the industry uh, because of its plasmid, plasmid production. And a lot of the industry was like that. Suddenly, when you're relevant, you become very relevant and then and then uh, you shoot through the roof and the outsourcing also goes up very, very, very quickly. And so I think in all those situations, you saw things like cell and gene therapy and the emergence of those as commercially viable products uh, take the industry in some ways by storm and by surprise. Uh, the industry was massively unprepared to deal with um, the capacity that was required. And you throw COVID on top of that, and it's even harder right? in terms of what you actually <laughs> yeah, yeah. needed with respect to production, right? It, it created a, uh, a massive need for capacity and almost, uh, you know, an entire industry stunned by how quickly everything moved. Yeah, it's fascinating to get your take on that. And I'm going to rewind back to, or was, well, actually, I'm going to come back to some of those points around 
the complexity and fragmentation of technology, uh, the impact of COVID and some of these cell and gene therapies. One thing I, I forgot to ask right at the start, which I was really curious about, um, when I've seen you speak at various events, you strike me as a very smart guy. And no surprise when I looked at your background, you you studied at Harvard, um, you studied at Harvard Business School. And I just was curious as someone that's run around the Harvard campus <laughs> many times, but never studied there. How, uh, how, what, what was it like going to school there? You know, obviously such a globally recognized name. It's kind of one that's, you know, used in the, you know, the media on movies and all that kind of st stuff, a bit like, you know, Oxford or Cambridge in the UK. W what was life like at Harvard and what did it, what did, what, if you reflect back now on your time there, what did it give you that you think enabled this successful career that you've that you've able to to develop for yourself? I feel like that might be a baited question, but uh, but I, I, I'm sure it's not. Uh, uh, um, you can go you know, any but, direction you want with that. It's, it's not it's not baited. I promise. No, 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 uh, for sure. Um, you know, when I think about my education, uh, number one, I feel very lucky. Uh, in terms of the opportunities that I've had. Uh, but I think the undergraduate experience was one which I really valued because the the peer group and the folks that I got to interact with, uh, they weren't just smart folks, and they, they were smart folks, but, but it wasn't just that. They were curious. They were curious about everything. It, it, it didn't matter what your major was. Uh, they could have a conversation about anything. Not that they were an expert on everything, but they could ask an intelligent question about any subject. People were genuinely curious about what you did in your hobbies, in your major, uh, in, in what you want to do as a career across lots of different subjects. And I think what I really appreciated about that is um, the ability to think very uh, multidisciplinarily, um, really across different functions. Uh, when I think about pharma services, as an example, more broadly, uh, I think about doing a lot of the work on specialty fine chemicals uh, with our industrials group because that goes into API uh, or with our packaging group and our industrials group because that goes into pharmaceutical packaging or our consumer group when we think about patient engagement and wellness management, right? There are these tendrils that go into other segments of outside of healthcare which are quite relevant because everything is becoming very multidisciplinary. It's very hard to think in silos. And so as an undergrad, I thought that experience and being able to really think um, holistically across subjects, but also be curious around lots of different subjects was a, was a great value. Uh, I think the business school experience was a little bit different, but what I really appreciated about business school um, for all of its pros and cons and for, with any stereotype, both positive or negative of Harvard Business School folks, one thing I will give credit to is they are a group of folks who truly want to make an impact um, in whatever it is that they do. And because of that, they can set goals and make plans, right? It was kind of the pragmatic part, whereas undergraduate was really the academic part. It was, well, understanding curiosity, multidisciplinary issues, that's great from an academic standpoint. But how do I actually turn those into ambitious plans and become the market leader or the global leader in something? And what the business school side of things uh, really, I think, taught me was that we have the potential to set the bar high. Uh, we just have to be thoughtful about 
what our value proposition is and really make a difference to those people who are buying it. Uh, but then how do you execute against that plan? So, so I, I think uh, undergrad instilled with me curiosity on multidisciplinary things and the business school really instilled with me maybe a, a certain ambition and a pragmatism to how to get it done. Mm, that's a really a genuinely interesting thing and that curiosity and disciplinary uh, or the multidisciplinary piece I think comes up again and again with some of the leaders that I interview so it's no shock to hear it but incredible to hear that you you're able to get some of that learning so easy uh, so so early on in in your career and and for our for our listeners who have not come across Ellie consulting and what you guys do specifically obviously in the life sciences area that you focus just paint a picture for our you know our listeners you know tell us more about the company and what you guys do and what, why it's relevant particularly for the outsourcing market for sure thank you Raman. Uh, lek uh, we're about to hit our 40th year anniversary in 2023 we were founded in london a uh, global firm 2000 people around the world uh, we have practices in healthcare industrials consumer uh, as well as uh, technology. Uh, healthcare is our largest practice. It's about uh, 40, 50% of what we do globally. Uh, and that's really a diversified group of uh, subsectors from med tech to healthcare services to life sciences and, and, and pharma services. Um, and really across that, we have a global network, a functional, with a lot of functional experts, with also a lot of scientific experts. We're very deliberate about having medical folks, as well as PhDs who really understand uh, medicinal chemistry or bioprocessing or whatever it is that we're talking about within these different spaces, as well as folks who uh, know the technology side of things uh, from software and systems and hardware. Um, and so as our focus and as we grew coming from the early days of biotech uh, in the in the 90s, where we we happened upon uh, these clients that nobody else would take, uh, really uh, non-revenue clients, uh, which were the early days of, of, of biotech. But folks like the Genzymes, the Genentechs, the Amgens, the Chirons of the world. And we started from that space and really grew today into a highly, highly diversified practice uh, across the globe, across every sector of healthcare. Uh, and I had the privilege and pleasure of, of building and leading our pharma services sector. Uh, and we have a very specific dedicated organization which thinks about pharma outsourcing uh, really across the spectrum of value uh, from discovery and clinical research to manufacturing, commercial services, market access and the like. Uh, and so uh, it, it's, it's been a pleasure watching our company grow and being a part of that and, and having the opportunity to lead our pharma services sector. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. I think one of the reasons I was really keen on getting you on is I've had the fortune of, of hearing some of the sound bites and some of the data and some of the insights that you have been able to provide over the last kind of couple of years in terms of what's going on in the market and had the the privilege to watch you speak at uh gil roth's pboa conference recently uh which was which was fantastic and 
So some of the questions that I've got, and you've mentioned some of these points, so I'll, I'll, I'll start there. I'm sure I could ask you about trends and where's the market going, but that seems a bit too broad <laughs> for someone like yourself. So one of the things I've heard you talk about, and you mentioned it today, is around uh, modality and technology fragmentation and what we're seeing in the market and how do CDMOs even decide which ones to place their bets on? Because for a lot of CDMOs, particularly those that are private equity backed, they want to pick modalities and technologies that are going to add the greatest, greatest value. So talk to us about how CDMOs go about choosing where to place their bets, but also how that impacts valuations from an M&A perspective as well. Oh, for sure. Um, I, I wish there was an answer, a universal answer for how CDMOs picked and cho- chose uh, where they actually where they played. But the reality is um, in any service business, whether you're talking about CDMO or consultancy or, or the like, there's, there's always this uh, tension between uh, what you want to build as a company and what you're really good at versus what, what your clients are asking you to do. And in the ideal world, that's always 100% aligned. But in the real world, it's probably not like that. There are times that very trusted clients to do something that's out of your wheelhouse and uh and there are times you want to move into an area where you're you think you're really good but but perhaps people don't know you and and so you you have to manage that tension and uh, every every service provider has to think about um how they develop their service portfolio what things they do to help individual clients versus say gosh no, that's not our wheelhouse. We'll leave that to somebody else. And uh, if you're running a business and it's someone offering to give you cash for something, it's sometimes hard to say no and say, well, that's not what we're best at. Um, so, so I think that's, that's, the, that's a challenge. Now, having said that, um, there is an opportunity, uh, again, always thinking with the balance of serving your clients as well as where you're positioned, of thinking about your service portfolio and you know when you're small scale you can be a really good specialist at one thing or if you're doing fairly basic things critical but basic things you can be a you know very good customer service oriented responsive or pharma service organization for your local relationships and you can build a a, a reasonable business up to scale uh up to a certain scale uh with those models but at some point you start thinking about well, what else do I go into? What are my clients asking me to do? What else can my capabilities be extended into? And that's when you have to start making choices. Uh, it gets all the more complex when you raise the points that you mentioned, Robin, uh, with respect to modality fragmentation and, frankly, technology technological bets. Hey, which modality is going to emerge? Uh, are we going to think about viral vector delivery or lipid nanoparticle delivery? What's going to become a dominant area? Are we talking about auto, uh, auto versus allo uh, cell therapies? Um, all of those things uh, require choices um, in terms of what you, what you invest in. And this is an area that uh, we try to think about very simplistic framework, right? Um, number one, what are you good at or where do you feel like you can be differentiated? Uh, in the modern contemporary world, it's harder and harder just to be a, a provider, one of many, who's not particularly differentiated. There may be some exceptions where there's capacity constraint where, uh, you know, if you build it, they will come, so to speak. But but in a lot of places, you do want to have areas where uh, you have some 
differentiated expertise or capability or trade secret know-how. So number one is your competence in an area and your ability to differentiate. Uh, The other part is the market opportunity. And this is the one where the fragmentation at technological risk create challenges for investment, especially with how quickly some of these things move. Uh, If you looked at cell and gene therapies more broadly, uh, there are a bunch of companies whose technologies were relevant. And then once cell and gene therapies started becoming much more prominent, everybody was scrambling for them. People were paying ridiculous premiums for those those companies, and they got snapped up very, very quickly. Uh, So what I tend to look for are areas where uh, what we call uh, there's conservation of the need, uh, meaning that regardless across any individual asset or any individual modality, there's a need for being able to do something. Plasmid is a good example of that, right? As uh, fill and finish is another area where where a lot of different functions need it, right? So it could be very, very, you know, tip of the spear, cutting edge like plasmid, or it could be uh, more run of the mill, like fill and finish, which which is capacity constrained and has to be done quite well, but is not necessarily uh, an innovative technology per se. And so looking for areas of, co- of conservation really across uh, different applications, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, another example is, you know, to be honest, I don't know uh, what non-viral delivery methods uh, will will become uh, the leading capabilities, like as we think about uh, lipid nanoparticles or otherwise. But I do think, as an example, that nanoparticles more broadly are going to have a role to play. Um, And they could be lipid, they could be protein, they could be carbohydrate, they could be a combination of those things. Not quite sure which, but if you build a portfolio which uh, can handle nanoparticles more broadly and start solving the, the, the challenges of, of drug delivery more holistically, then you start seeing something as, hey, well, I'm hedging my bets or these are used uh, across different applications. Plasmid is used across lots of different applications. So, so that has diversity already built in. Um, but with nanoparticles, maybe thinking about different capabilities and uh, different properties of the nanoparticles. So maybe you want lipids and carbohydrates and proteins uh, all together and really becoming the nanoparticle expert, right? That's what I think about it. How do you create diversification in your own portfolio um, to mitigate the risk that we're talking about? And so that's what I always look for are areas that I don't know how it's going to be relevant, but it's going to be conserved. And if you think about uh, certain types of purification technologies like uh, liquid chromatography columns and the, and the r- r- resins that are inherent and used in separation. Look, we don't know which modalities are going to be dominant, but we're pretty sure that a lot of them are going to be using liquid chromatography for separation and purification, right? So you can start thinking about, hey, developing the expertise in making resins uh, in, in the way you know Repligen has done. Uh, for for AAV separation or like, then you start getting into areas where again I like that conservation of the technology with respect to the capability. That's really fascinating, actually, and it's almost uh, you know not going all in on this specific technology, but having a broader offering that's applicable to multiple areas. It seems a very sensible way of thinking about things where you're not kind of going all in on on one and you mentioned before I suppose the impact of COVID on the sector and obviously 
over the last couple of years, we've seen increased demand naturally for the services in, in within the pharma services and outsourcing space. What are you seeing from a, I suppose, a come down from COVID, if that's the right phrase? And how is it impacting the broader demand for, for the services and, and outsourcing? And also, I suppose, linked closely to that, presumably there are some victims or casualties is probably the better word of companies that were able to do great business during COVID because they had the right capabilities, the right time, right contracts, et cetera, that might be otherwise having a more difficult time now. Those vaccine demands are, are starting to fall. Oh, for sure. You know, COVID had such an impact on, well, everything, uh, of course, uh, but it exposed a number of different things uh, that were out there from supply chain vulnerability uh, to the need to rapidly uh, ramp up uh, capacity, whether it's triage capacity in a hospital or uh, you know vaccine production uh, capacity. Uh, but more broadly, you know <clears throat> there are couple things that happened, right? Uh, during during the pandemic, in the beginning, certain things like clinical trials slowed down for a quarter or two, but then they came roaring back. Um, vaccine production uh, in some clinical trials uh, for COVID displaced other clinical trial and production volume uh, that was being that were being made. Uh, for instance, in I like using the example within fill and finish, when vaccines was starting to be made, uh, in late 2020, early 2021, uh, the fill and capacity that was being used was existing capacity. It wasn't, you know, new capacity that was brought online. I mean, the lead times are way longer than that. And so they were using existing capacity in fill and finish. Uh, and as part of Operation Work Speed and the equivalents around the world, uh, other products got displaced. Uh, and so you ended up with um, COVID displacing that. And so you had this backlog that was built up. Um, and so so when we really look at it, there was uh, displacement uh, of a certain capacity, but at the same time, this massive demand of what was out there. Now, coming down off of that, you really have to think segment by segment what's actually happening. And, and to the degree that COVID basically displaced other capacity, they get a little bit of of a cushion because that capacity needs to be come back and be filled in. And so there's a little bit of that, especially on, let's say, on the fill and finish side. But if you're just thinking about uh, mRNA production, as an example, um, the sheer volume of mRNA that needed to be produced uh, for for Moderna and Pfizer BioNTech's vaccines was enormous. Uh, there isn't quite that volume to come back. I mean, there will be someday, but it's not immediately. And certainly in the short to immediate term, there's going to be a, a bit of a drop. Um, and, you know, when I when I think about something like that, uh, and it's an opportunity just for many companies to say, hey, we got a one-time cash and operational windfall because we were able to help supply for COVID, but we have to reset. We should take that as a, as a one-time gift as opposed to ongoing operations and then continuing growing sort of off of you know, the historical trend line, whether you're CDMO. Um, asking CDMOs to uh, start from the peak of COVID as the trend line and try to replace that, for the most part, is a fool's errand. Um, that's very, very difficult to do. 
um, you know, take it as a boon uh, and a one-time boon and, and, and as opposed to a long-term trend and consider it, you know, a two to three year extraordinary event. Uh, and then really think about where you go from there. Now, if you've invested in capacity, you do have to think about what you use that capacity for. Um, and there are going to be, as you pointed out, some folks who end up with the short end of the stick uh, for, for something like that. So, so you do need to look at segment by segment, uh, specifically what capacity you're talking about on whether or not uh, there's a, a good pathway out of that without, without contracting revenue. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting hearing your thoughts on it, and you know I've been doing this podcast for for over a couple of years now, and right in the midst of the pandemic, so it seems crazy to be talking about the the aftermath and how we're dealing with the sector from the midst of it. So, but you know some of the insights you gave there are, are fascinating and very very accurate, certainly based on what I am seeing as well. And one of the things you mentioned when I saw you speak recently was you said blockbuster drugs are now based on value and not volume. Um, yes. Is that something that, so it shows you I do listen to Ian. I do, I, I was listening to, uh, <laughs> to your, to your talk, but do you, <laughs> do you think that is driven? Oh, sorry. Is, is, am I correcting assuming that is driven primarily by, the growth in the, I suppose, the new drug products in the sexier end of the market, so the cell and gene therapy, which are those, I suppose, smaller patient population, lower production type. Um, uh, it's not just that. Okay, uh, yeah, I'd love you to talk more and just, I suppose, give our, I love that. I mean, I, th I found it a very fascinating thing that you said, and I'd love you to kind of talk a little bit more, which, to, you know, to our listener about what, what you meant by that. Uh, I think the simplest way to think about it is, what do we think about the major blockbuster drugs and what do they uh, actually look at, look like uh, as an example? Um, and if you go back 20 years ago, major blockbuster drugs were like Lipitor or Nexium, right? Which were uh, PCP, general practitioner, primary healthcare drugs uh, that millions of people were, were on, um, take millions of people taking billions of pills on an annual basis and blockbusters were made on in that vein. Um, but then if you move forward, you know, to 10 years, uh, then you start looking at a more specialization, uh, of, of, of the types of drugs that are out there, meaning that it was more specialty drugs, things that were going after autoimmune or oncology, right? If you think about uh, uh, things like Humira um, and, uh, and the like. And it was much less common uh, to have widespread mass uh, sort of use of drugs. Uh, if you think about Solvadi for Hep C, uh, in the early uh, early teens, uh, that was one where it really, really peaked very, very quickly as it worked through a prevalent population, uh, but it wasn't a PCP drug, right? So you're going from PCP to more specialty. And then today, if you move forward, then, then you introduce some of these emerging modalities that you're talking about around, let's say, cell therapies, which are in some cases very patient-specific, if you think about uh, modified autologous cell therapy. And now you're talking about really micro populations that are out there. Um, 
you know, this is coincident um, with um, the, the, the increase in prices for these things, right? Lipitor was a type of drug that you would say were, was dollars a day, right? Um, whereas today you're talking about therapies that are starting to come up with seven-figure prices, um, and you really see that shift, right? But it's not just the, the precision medicine of cell and gene therapy, but it's also around targeted specialty medicines like, you know, the, the Humiras of the world or, or the, uh, or the, or, or the Darzalexes of the world uh, that are out there in oncology. You know, you're, you're talking about uh, this mass movement from high volume, continuous, just-in-time manufacturing of the days of small molecule pills like Lipitor and Nexium uh, to an to a environment today where it's much more common to have small batch, sm smaller volume, small batch production with varied technologies uh, in, in you know, suites that are being used for multiple purposes uh, where you're changing over uh, the products, you're changing over the equipment that's being used. Uh, and so your manufacturing network, your suite setup, the equipment you buy, all of those things change, right? When you go into small batch, and and as an example, the 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 really emergence of single use systems or smaller scale bioreactors, um, you know, today tw farms of twenty thousand liter bioreactors. Uh, are not the norm. That's not where the industry is moving. Now, to, to Samsung's credit, they have made a great business of building out 20,000 liter bioreactor farms and really accumulating a lot of the volume there and keeping their, their factories full. But if you look at most everybody else, folks are investing in smaller capacity, 10, 5,000, 2,000, 1,000 liter bioreactors, even smaller, and moving some of those things to single use, right? All of that is happening because of this migration from large volume, you know, blockbusters to small volume blockbusters. Again, in in that vein of go, blockbusters going from volume to value. It is. A, it's a. I mean, you articulated the the shift from the you said you know billions of pills to the more micro patient audiences and the advanced therapies. It's. Uh, it really does reflect what's going on in the market, and I'm conscious of timing. I've got a couple of final final questions one thing i was going to ask you was obviously we're seeing you know, the start of start of a new year we've obviously had the biotech slowdown in in 2022 so interested on your thoughts on how the kind of more brutal capital markets are having on the m a space and just demand generally in the outsourcing space any 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 thoughts on whether it'll be a good or a bad thing for you know CROs and CDMOs and pharma services. Yeah, that that that's a, that is a tough question. Uh, it does vary. <laughs> I, did, I didn't want to get. I didn't want to give you the easy questions today. <laughs> <laughs> Not just by sector, but even by sub function. It really depends on what's out there. Um, look, because of capital markets or recession or emergence from the COVID peak era, all those things are creating a certain uncertain environment over the next 12 to 18 months. And no doubt everyone will have to deal with some sluggishness uh, or, or uh, slowdown in terms of what's actually happening. But for the most part, what I think about uh, pharma services and pharma outsourcing 
uh, healthcare of most of the, uh, amongst major industry sectors that are out there is generally some one of the least cyclical, uh, the the least um, uh, prone to impact from recessions and the like. Right, healthcare demand is what healthcare demand is, and things trudge on. And I think as the industry has and the capital markets have become more sophisticated as pharma, uh, indeed, on some level, the cyclicality has become uh, less important. Um, uh, said another way, um, as folks have realized that the demand is really independent from the economic cycles, uh, folks don't change as much uh, in what their plans are with respect to what they have to do in R&D. And I think the sophisticated money is saying, look, keep the eye on the ball. You have your clinical trial program that has nothing to do with the recession. You have it funded, keep it going. Um, and so we do see in the long term uh, more uh, sort of protection from recessions because of how sophisticated the industry has become. Uh, but having said that, with CapEx or commercial spend or things like that, you will get bumps in the road. Uh, and in a general macroeconomic environment, which is tough, you'll get some some conservatism on, you know, Five ten percent that you might be looking at that you may have to manage through. So, so I don't want to say that there's no impact, but I will say relative to other other sectors, uh, the peak to trough is relatively small uh, uh, for for healthcare or the pharma services outsourcing side of things. Uh, I've also you know received a question at times of well, do you think folks will insource more or outsource more because of the recession or the macro economic environment and what I found is any individual company may make a different choice up or down. You know, some people say insourcing is better because you're not paying overhead. And some people say outsourcing is better because you get to variabilize cost and manage it better that way. Um, when I look at it on a macro level, most folks are not outsourcing because of economic, macroeconomic reasons. People are outsourcing because they don't have the expertise uh, because an outsourcer maybe have better capacity utilization, because they want to access a technology, uh, because they want to create redundancy in their network, right? The, the rationale for outsourcing is not economics, economic cycle driven. It, it's really for other business reasons that people do it. Yeah, it's a fascinating point, actually, where it's, it, you've, I think you've, you've hit upon a really interesting point there around the, it isn't the it isn't necessarily a capital decision to you know to your point around expertise. You're doing it because it's an essential to move your program and your product forward. That you need that expertise or capacity in order to do so. Uh, and not everyone has the luxury of insourcing, right? And don't doesn't have the <laughs> capabilities and expertise exactly. to do do everything. So, final question, Ian, because I know we're 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 almost out of time. You know, for a lot of our listeners, they're at the start of 2023, thinking. You know, we've got what looks like a, a, a rocky year ahead from a macro factor, you know, from a macro perspective, like you, you mentioned there. Any, you know, any big trends or anything that you, you see as being, you know, will be, be, I suppose, key things to think about for companies going in to the year ahead. And it could be some of the things you said there around being, you know, being aware of the sluggishness in the market and conserving cash, but any kind of tips for people working in the contract services space and the pharma services space, appreciate depending on whether in CROs or technology companies or packaging or manufacturing is slightly different, but any top line tips or trends that you think will be worthwhile and more keeping an eye on? For sure. Um, this, this, 
movement that I mentioned from you know, large volume manufacturing into small batch is a really major big deal, right? I, I mean, it affects how you think about what technologies you do, how you think about your manufacturing network, your redundancy, your utilization management, your manufacturing planning. Um, all those things uh, become very, very important, right? And so number one, I think looking at the new normal of manufacturing and how you think about networks is a critical part. Uh, always important to pay attention to pipeline. Uh, th there's, there's this question of all these different modalities of technologies, in some ways, not of if, but when, you know, there was the question of when will gene therapy become important? When will cell therapy become important? When will allogeneic become important, right? Uh, or when will when will there be a potential revolution in small molecule innovation? Uh, you know, there, there's a range of different things that, uh, that are important to pay attention to. But when will microbiome become important, right? Um, paying attention to the leaders in that field uh, who, who, which of those leaders have the potential to become commercial, uh, um, leaders, uh, and what capacity that, that, that they're going to need. So I think that's always a good thing to, to maintain and monitor. But I think the other part, what I think about pharma services in general is yes, you can, you can make a decent sized business just be, by having good service or working in a capacity constrained area. But we are really at a point where people are rethinking supply chain. Uh, people are thinking about uh, in small molecule, uh, you know, continuous flow manufacturing on small batch in a way that people didn't consider before. Uh, on the CRO side, thinking about the concept of decentralized trials, but more, more importantly, decentralized functions. And what does that mean for reaching new patients and everything? We're, we're at this point where... A, a lot of CRO market is looking to shift away from a very labor intensive clinical research associate or site monitor uh, intensive offering to things that are more tech enabled and more remote and more distributed. Uh, these are the types of things that I'm always looking for. Um, my, my one rule when I think about pharma services is um, if you help pharma companies do more with less, so be more efficient on either R&D productivity patient uptake and access, cost basis, or compliance. If you can do more with less on any of those key functions, then you have a winning value proposition in boom times, in bust times, for any pharma company that's out there. And so that's really the crux of what I'm looking for. Well, what a, what a brilliant what a brilliant way to end uh, the conversation. Ian, I'm so grateful for the time you've given us today. I know how busy you are in your in your work life and you've made time for us and our listener so thanks thanks so much for for being a guest on on molecule to market my pleasure hi again thanks so much for tuning in to molecule to market we hope you enjoyed today's episode you can find more shows on spotify apple podcast or wherever you like to listen get in touch with us on our website molecule to marketpod.com and follow us on linkedin or twitter and we will see you again next week you're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, 
an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.